Well, good morning, everybody. So glad that you are here this morning. Want to say good morning to all of you up in Port Perry this morning. And as Ajax, let's say Merry Christmas to the Port Perry site this morning. Let's just say Merry Christmas to all of you. We're so glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, thanks for being with us. Want to say good morning to all of you watching and listening online. Well, we're in week two out of this series in the most familiar place of the year, Christmas. And I started last week by reminding us what the literal definition of a pilgrim is. A pilgrim is a traveler who comes from a faraway place and is on a journey to a holy place. But as we started getting into the very familiar story of Christmas last week, we began to understand something that even we who've grown up in church many for, for many years might have missed. Real pilgrimage is to a person, it's never to a place. And Christian pilgrimage moves us to the person of Jesus. And as we found out of the story last week, he ends up giving peace. Now, last week we started with the shepherds, the very first pilgrims of the Christmas story. But they were not pilgrims at first. They were not on some holy journey to some holy place. Something happened to people that were not looking. They were not marked by expectation or anticipation at all. And as I shared last week, shepherds themselves were outcasts in their own society because they physically and literally lived with their flocks on the edge of society. They were normal, everyday people, blue-collar, average. And like I shared last week, shepherds in our culture would be someone who works at Tim's or McDonald's or a cashier at a grocery store, a janitor in a small apartment building, a plumber in a small rural town, or someone that cleans food in a food court, or an immigrant worker picking mushrooms 25 minutes north from here. Now, none of these jobs, by the way, are lesser, nor are the people that do them. But if there was going to be some life-changing, world-changing, world-altering event, something even more significant than discovering like aliens exist. That is God who is the creator of all of existence decides to introduce himself to humanity. None of us in our right mind would say, well, that's going to happen over a double-double in Tim Hortons. No one would ever expect the living God of heaven and earth to send an angel to show up beside a 14-year-old girl making fries in a McDonald's place. No one would ever imagine that if God was going to announce his full incarnation and his full reality, that he would do it with a bunch of immigrant workers from Guatemala as they were picking pumpkins. And yet that is exactly what took place. God sent an angel and then the choirs of angels to the least expected people, shepherds. And the encounter took place, and then we read the story that the shepherds, after they were overwhelmed and heard Gabriel and saw the choirs of angels, they rushed to go, and they met Jesus and Mary and Joseph. And we ended last week with these most holy words. Luke 2.17. When the shepherds had seen Jesus... They spread word concerning what had been told about this child, and all who heard the shepherds were amazed at what they were saying. All of those, I said last week, who truly actually become pilgrims and meet Jesus suddenly become pioneers for him. Now, if we've read our Bibles, and many of us have for years, what I shared last week is many of us missed the point that the shepherds became the very first evangelists in all of Scripture to start pointing the world to Jesus. But don't miss this. No one genuinely becomes a pilgrim. No one enters into holy travel to meet God unless God initiates the pilgrimage in the first place. All human-based pilgrimages, even the most religious ones, if the inception point is not God, will lead to nothing. But here's the good news of Christmas. God has made the first move, and God keeps moving. 
But one thing we need to remember as we get going is God does not just come for poor people. God does not just come for the outcast in society or the blue-collar worker. God has also come for the rich, the powerful, the educated, the scientist, the professor. God comes for shepherds, kings, and priests. See, the Christmas story, if you look back and you stand back, is bookend by both poor and rich, by blue-collar and white-collar, by low and high, no privilege and lots of privilege. And in the middle of that book is the word Jesus himself, the original pilgrim and pioneer of our faith. So today we get to go to the other end of the spectrum. Today, actually, we get to go and begin a journey with the actual, original, genuine pilgrims. Today we focus on the Magi. Some of you have called them wise men or the king of the east. But look again, and do not forget this as we dive into Matthew chapter 2. They are not going to look for a place. They are going to look for a person. It reads like this in Matthew 2.1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who has been born, the king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. Now just don't forget, the wise men come two years after Jesus has been born. He is now a toddler. He's not some little baby in a nativity set. And they arrive and they say, we have heard that Jesus has been born. Now if you read all the gospel accounts... By this moment, Jesus has been called Savior, Son of David, Son of God, Son of Man, Prince of Peace, King of the Jews, the Word made flesh, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And yet, if you know the story well, we know that this King, the ultimate King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, has been born in the time of other kings. Matthew points out it is the time of King Herod. Matthew, as we found out a few years ago, was contrasting the true coming king from the one that think they are king. Now, Herod is the dark side of Christmas. Ruthless, politician, dictator, Roman puppet, psychopath, paranoid murderer, and he would be disturbed at any possibility that there could be another rival. I shared this a few years ago. Many of us actually don't know the horror and danger of Herod. Herod had half of the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish high, high community, murdered. He had 300 court officials murdered. He had the high priest and his brother-in-law drowned in front of his own eyes for sport. He executed his wife, his mother-in-law, and three of their sons. He had three of his uncles murdered. And as he lay dying, his arrangement with his soldiers was at the point of his death, every single nobleman in Jerusalem would be murdered along with him. And in the middle of that paranoia and psychopath and dictatorship, debauchery. These great kings of the east arrive in Jerusalem years later and they are full of anticipation and expectation and they want to find out where the true king of the Jews is. Oh, by the way, that's the difference between the shepherds and the wise men. The shepherds were not anticipating anything. They had no expectation, but these gentlemen had full expectation and full anticipation. And I think that word Anticipation is the best word for the Christmas season. I mean, anticipation, right now, hundreds of millions of children are freaking out because it's eight days till Christmas. It is anticipation. They cannot wait. My children ask me every day. Somehow they think if they do math different, Christmas comes earlier. I keep telling them, no, it's not going to happen. 
Maybe you were a kid and you remember the anticipation and you could not wait for that present, depending on what generation you were born in, the Red Rider BB gun or, or the Barbie dream horse or uh, dream house, not horse. She had one of those two, uh, right? Like it doesn't matter what it is. Now it's Nintendo Switch and num nums and sasas and I, I'm lost with the tutus. I can't even keep up. The point is this, there's that anticipation That absolute anticipation. Our culture, by the way, in the last 24 hours, 40 hours, has been marked by anticipation because of Star Wars. If you want to understand anticipation, look at the craziness of people waiting dressed like Chewbacca in a line to go see a movie. That's it. Yes. Okay. He obviously liked the film. Yeah. Do you want to know what happened, by the way? No, no. It's all all good. It's okay. Darth Vader is Luke's. No, no. Okay. So, no. But anticipation. And these men actually have done something many of us don't catch. These great wise men traveled 900 miles before there were planes or cars. Scholars estimate it took them two years to arrive in Israel. And they're arriving to find a toddler. And so they arrive full of anticipation. They have paid major money to do this pilgrimage. And they arrive and they say to Herod and the theologians, where is the one who's been born, the king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east. We've come to worship him. Ever ask yourself the question who the kings of the east were, these wise men, these magi? Magi, by the way, just simply means magician. They were found in the countries we now call Iraq, Iran, and the modern Arabian Peninsula. They would have had absolute exposure to the Jewish faith after the second great exile. You can read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah, the book of Daniel, etc. Large communities of, of Jews stayed in those countries and built large, large intellectual communities, and they would interact with the other intellectuals of other communities. And so these large Jewish centers of learning had exposed those countries to the Jewish faith. And these magi had been interacting with these communities. Now, one scholar puts it this way. At the root of the ancient study of the stars was a conviction that the microcosm of humanity is in a magnetic symbiotic relationship with the macrocosm of the stars. Astronomy was the study of the law or movement of the stars, and astrology was the study of the message of the stars. Astrology and astronomy are connected at this point. They are two disciplines. Right now, they are separated. But back then, they were combined into the same person in the ancient world. And because of their skill to decipher the message of the stars, magi were considered wise men. Now, this, by the way, brings into focus an unbelievable scandal connected to the Christmas story many of us have missed. Not only were these Magi non-Jews, which was bad enough to an Orthodox Jewish worldview because they did not believe that God actually really loved non-Jews and a non-Jew could only be saved if they themselves converted to Judaism and even if they did that, they would never get close to God at all. If you went to the ancient temple, there was a court called the Court of the Gentiles which was the farthest point away and you could never get closer. But to the Jewish mind, the Orthodox mind, if, if they never expected God to speak to shepherds who are at least Jews themselves, God would never, never, never love or save or relationally know non-Jews, let alone magi. Why? Well, because in the Old Testament and even the New Testament, astro- astrology is forbidden. It's occultic. God forbids people. And by the way, if you're a Christian here today and you're doing horoscopes, repent. You are never permitted to go and begin to do spiritual practices that take you outside of the will of God to get information about your future or about who God is. 
Actually, it was one very famous rabbi years and years before Jesus was born, before this event, who simply articulated this way the Jewish worldview. He who learns from a magi is worthy of death. Here's what's more crazy. Matthew is writing his letter to a Jewish community. So you need to ask yourself this morning, well, what in the world was Matthew thinking? What a mistake, what a foot-and-mouth moment, what a social blunder. Matthew should have just kept this part of the story out. But he says, no, of course I've included it. Of course these magi who are doing very wrong practices in part, even though they're scientists at the other hand, of course they're welcome and included to celebrate the birth of our Messiah. Of course they become the first formal pilgrims of our faith. And his Jewish friends and his Jewish critics would ask, why? And Matthew's response, if he was having a a coffee with him, would be this. Well, of course I included them in my story. A, because it happened, but deeper than that, you know who I am, right? I was a Jewish tax collector. You say, well, John, what in the world does that have to do with the Christmas story in Wiseman? Oh, don't forget who tax collectors were. Tax collectors were Jewish middlemen between the Jews and the Roman occupational government. Jewish tax collectors had made a deal with the devil. They sold their soul for money. They were working for the occupational force of the Romans. Here's the modern equivalent so you can understand. This would be like a Polish person working for the Nazis during the occupation and actually doing it for money and thinking it's okay. The Romans had come into Israel and removed all ethnic rights. They had killed tens of thousands of people publicly, and they represented to the Jewish mind all that was against the true living God. And if you read historical sources outside of the Bible, time and time again, Jewish tax collectors are involved in mass exploitation through lying, cheating, bribes, and stealing, taxing their own family and friends, and getting incredibly wealthy. And as we found out in the last few years in studying the scriptures, if you chose to become a tax collector as a Jew back then during Jesus' time, you would immediately be removed from the synagogue system. In other words, you were cut off from God's people and you would also be abandoned by your family. So to get rich, you have to leave your faith and your family and your friends. And so Matthew is writing this in years after the Christmas event. Of course, this ties to him because Jesus walked up to Matthew who was at a tax booth and he said, hey, Matthew, you come follow me. And then this is how the story progressed in Matthew's life in Matthew 9.10. Well, Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the pastors, the Pharisees saw this, they asked Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. And here's Matthew's point. In the middle of his story and at the beginning of his gospel, Jesus is going to bring all sorts of people around Jesus' life and death and resurrection. He's going to bring hated tax collectors and occultic scientific wise men and prostitutes and Jews and Greeks and Samaritans and Romans and soldiers and religiously inspired terrorists and ostracized lepers to the greatest religious leaders. All are going to be welcomed into his family through his birth, his ministry, his life, his death, his resurrection. And notice again, even in Matthew's case, who begins real pilgrimage? God does. Jesus walks up to Matthew's tax booth and says, you come now, follow me. Jesus went to Matthew, Mary, Joseph, and shepherds. It began with an angel and the magi. Well, God chooses something that actually they'll understand. He launches a star into the sky. It's like the very first GPS. It's like Surrey shows up and says, Wiseman, it's time to go. Turn left here. Turn left here for the next 900 miles. So back to the moment. The pilgrimage is coming to an end. Two years of walking and traveling. 
two years of expense. And notice again, they don't ask, where's the place? They don't ask, where's the holy monument? They don't ask, where is the place where history was changed? They say, no, no, where's the one who has been born? We have come to worship him. We saw his star. Okay, let's talk about the star. Not only did this physically happen, but it was predicted so long ago. It's so incredibly important if you are starting to grow in your Christian faith or you've been a Christian for a while or you're checking us out that you read your Old Testament. Sometimes you're like, oh, it's so boring. No, keep reading it. The more you understand your Old Testament, the more the New Testament will come to life. See, actually, all of this was predicted in the Old Testament thousands of years earlier. Listen to one Old Testament scholar who makes the connection about the wise men and the stars and the whole deal. He writes, when Moses was leading Israel through the desert towards the promised land, he encountered a terrible wicked king who, like the, pharaoh, the, like the pharaoh of Egypt, tried to destroy him. His name was Balak, king of Moab, who summoned from the east a famous seer named Balaam who was to use his magical arts against Moses and Israel. Now, Balaam was a non-Israelite. He was an occultic visionary. He practiced sorcery and enchantment. And in short, in Jesus' day, would be called a magi. Now, he and his two servants came, but instead of cursing Moses and the Israelites, he had a favorable vision of them and their future. Here's the summary of what Balaam, who was supposed to curse Israel, who ended up blessing Israel, said in Numbers 24, 15. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. So Balaam comes just from the east like the Magi. He uses supernatural arts just like the Magi. And he predicts a star which will symbolize one that is going to come out of Israel and rule the world forever. So this was already set up so long before. And by the way, here's the side note. God will use anything to draw people to himself. God will begin pilgrimage starting where we are at. By, by the way, have you ever asked this too? What did they actually see? I mean, the heavens themselves were declaring that things were happening over Israel in a very unique event. These men who were both scientific and occultic together were watching the stars and something unusual happened beyond the normal rhythm of astronomy and astrology. So we need to ask ourselves the question, because again, the seeker among us and the skeptics like, oh, this is probably just written in to make it sort of more glorified and movie-esque. No, no. Actually, these things are recorded even outside of Scripture. One person said, some scholars think the star was the light produced by the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, which happened three times in 7 BC. Such a celestial event would have been in particular interest at that time because Jupiter was always associated with kingly rule, and Saturn was connected to the Jewish people. To the Magi, the star of Bethlehem was a sign that a glorious kingdom was about to dawn. In other words, they would read the stars and say, something is happening in Israel that is so unique, connected to kingship, we must go see what it is. Others say, no, it's not the alignment, it's a comet. There was a supernova recorded by both Chinese and Korean astronomers in the April of 5 B.C., and many people said, no, it's that thing. And others say, no, no, it's neither of these. Actually, they would argue the angel that appeared to Mary and the angel that appeared to Joseph actually himself became the star to guide them because it says that the star moved. No matter what it was, whether it was a supernova or a comet or a downright supernatural angelic moment, the heavens are declaring it has begun. And God is using nature to reveal and to promote and to call these astronomer astrologers to come and see. 
Oh, and it should be no mistake that when you get to the end of the Bible, at the end of time, Jesus' name is connected to this event. Revelation twenty two sixteen. I am Jesus, the root and offspring of David. I am the bright and morning what? Star. Well, back to the star and back to nature itself. And this is an incredibly important moment for us this morning. Nature and supernatural experiences will never be a full witness to who God is and, and his workings. You've got to become a pilgrim. See, knowing God is like a two-level house. You can enter through the first level into the first part of the house through nature, and you can know there's a God because of the order and creation, that he's, that he's a brilliant engineer and he's an artist. You can even know not only through nature and its beauty, but even through multiple supernatural events that obviously something is going on above and beyond what we see naturally. It's what scholars call general revelation. But to move to the second level of the house, you need something specific given to you. You actually need God to introduce himself to you through his word and through his people and through himself. And then you can know his name and his nature and his love and his expectations for you. And you can know he's one yet trinity. See, the star was moving these educated, wealthy, spiritually minded scientists towards the one who actually had created both the seen and the unseen. And the star was literally moving them from the first level of the house up into the second level. And so they come and meet him, come to meet him. And as they're walking up these stairs metaphorically, they ask where he is. Well, it says in verse 3 of Matthew 2 that when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. That's the Canadian way of reading this. He was absolutely paranoid. And all of Jerusalem was with him. And when he called together all the people's chief priests and the teacher of the law, he asked them, where was the Messiah supposed to be born? Well, the great theologians and the pastors come and they gather around Herod and they say, well, the Old Testament is clear about this. Uh, Micah the prophet spoke about this, we know. In, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the pro prophet has written, but, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will become the ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. And, and then, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them in this private audience the exact time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, you go and make careful search for the child. And as soon as you find him, you report it to me, so I may go and worship him too. Th this shows you the ruthlessness and the cunning of Herod. He doesn't want to worship this child. He wants to do what he's done with every other rival. He wants to murder this child. And then the religious leaders, have you ever caught this before? With all their understanding and with all their theological textbooks, with all their God-given ritual, with, with their full access to God's word, unlike most non-Jews on earth, and they were working in the temple day in and day out, they themselves do not choose to actually go see if it's true. Those from the inside, whether religiously or politically, are apathetic or paranoid, but none of them become pilgrims. It's going to take outsiders to go see if any of this is real. Well, it says that after they heard the king, uh, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them, and it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Overjoyed is such a profoundly strong word. It's like winning the lottery. It's like getting a clean bill of health after a cancer scare. They have come, and the pilgrimage is worth it. And they were going to find the person they had been waiting for. And so they travel the last 5.8 miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, and they arrive at the place where Jesus was staying. Now, I think we miss the power of their arriving. 
Bethlehem at this moment in time is a nothing little place. It's a podunk little town. This would be like the type of town where there isn't even a stoplight and there isn't even a Tim Hortons. Like, how do you even live there, right? And as this little nothing of a town is sleeping as it usually does, in our modern equivalents, it would be like 10 black SUV Tahoes, bulletproof, drive up into a town like that and stop in front of Mary's house that everyone knows because everyone knows and all these security get out and all these men get out and it'd be like world famous uh, pop stars showing up at your house knocking. The security and they'd be like, what is happening? And up these men come and they knock on the door. And it says that when the door was open, they saw the child with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and they worshipped him. Jesus is a toddler. I guarantee you Jesus wasn't even looking at them. He was probably playing or hitting or sucking or fighting or something. But these great men of intelligence and wealth, what happens at the end of pilgrimage that is genuine? What do pilgrims do? They worship Jesus. Powerful, wealthy, educated men, they bow before a toddler and they worship him. This is, by the way, the greatest gift beyond all the gifts they're about to give. It symbolizes the idea that Jesus, even as an infant, is the true King of kings and the Lord of lords. But also don't miss the power, the scandal, and the blasphemy of this moment. These non-Jewish men walk into a Jewish house. You say, well, what's the problem with that? Oh, actually, in this culture, in this time, Jews were taught that if non-Jews entered your home and ate with you or had access to your home, it would corrupt your relationship with God. That is why the Pharisees continually said to Jesus, you can't keep eating with tax collectors and sinners because that external conversation literally is infecting your relationship with God. You're becoming impure by having dinner with them. And not only do non-Jews enter to the house of Mary, but actually occultists enter into the house of Mary. And not only did, is this a violation, then they bow down and they worship them. Now, Joseph and Mary are good Jews who understand, O hero Israel, the Lord our God, our Lord our God is one. There is one God, only one is to worship. And if any person worships any other human, it is blasphemy. They would have done everything to stop this, but interestingly, they don't interfere at all. They allow these men to worship their boy. This is blasphemy worthy of deaths unless God, truly, Emmanuel, is with us. And it's Jesus. So this real and honest holy pilgrimage not only ends with a declaration that actually God's come from everyone and he's going to break all these barriers. Not only do they worship Jesus, then actually the foundation of gift giving, which all of us will do in the next seven to eight days, has its roots here. They give the toddler Jesus gifts. It says they open their treasures. And if you read it in the original language, it's almost like treasure boxes. And they presented Jesus with gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, if you know anything about Near Eastern history, you will know that these are not just expensive gifts. These are gifts for royalty. But not only are they gifts for royalty, as I've taught year in and year out in this church, these actually symbolize who Jesus is and what he's come to do. They present Jesus with gold. Now, that's not a problem for us in our culture. If someone walked up to your house and opened a big box of gold bars, you'd be like, I'm in. But here it's not just, oh my goodness, look, we have RSPs the rest of our life. It's deeper than this. Gold symbolizes the kingliness of Jesus. But it's the next one that's so intriguing to me. Frankincense. 
Frankincense is uh, gum resin. When you burn it, it's incredibly sweet, extremely rare, incredibly valuable in its day. But the one thing that many of us do not know is this. In Israel at this moment in time, frankincense was only allowed to be used in worship in the temple. You were never allowed to personally own it and use it that way. It was used as worship to be burned. You can trace it all the way back to the time of Moses. And so here's what's beginning to unfold, which is so unbelievable. These wise men actually present Jesus with frankincense. And this frankincense is what is used to burn as incense in the temple to symbolize the prayers of God's people. And so by giving this, they probably don't even understand. They are actually declaring that the one who has been met in the temple for thousands of years, Yahweh, Elohim, the great I am, the God of Moses, found in the temple is now found in flesh in Bethlehem and they are presenting him with incense. It is a declaration of his, his nature. And then myrrh, of course, also a very famous fragrant offering. But in the time of Jesus, much of the time it was used to embalm the dead. And many scholars see the metaphorical connection between this and Jesus' coming death. But the amazing thing about the myrrh connection is this, that I don't know if you know the story of Easter, but a group of women, right, on Easter Sunday morning come. One of them named was Joanna, other was a Mary. They came and they wanted to, what, put spices on his body. Guess what they were bringing to Jesus to put on his body? Myrrh. But they never used it. Why? Because he wasn't there anymore. In gold and frankincense and myrrh, we see the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and we see why he's come. We see his nature, his identity, all with this little toddler. And notice, it's not the great Jewish kings, and it's not the great theologians who give it to him. It is outsiders who give it to him first. But more than that, more than all the metaphorical meanings, this was all predicted. 700 years earlier in Isaiah chapter 60, this was predicted that this event would come. Nations will come to your light, kings to the brightness of your dawn. From all the way from Sheba, where these gentlemen were from, they will come. They were bare, they were bare gold and incense and proclaim the praise of the Lord. Well, this had to happen or Jesus wouldn't have been who he claimed. But actually it's this last verse in verse 12 that brings it all home. After all this amazing moments take place, after being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, the wise men return to their country by another route. Pilgrimage moves you to the person of Jesus who gives us peace. And if you really get his peace, you'll always go on another path and then you'll become a pioneer. If you want to summarize the Christmas story, the Easter story, the gospel, it's right there. Pilgrimage moves you to the person of Jesus. He gives you peace. Then you go another path and you become a pioneer. See, the Magi would be the least likely candidates for God's love. Yet notice that all changes when these highly intelligent, religious, political men of high social status bow and they accept Jesus. And if you really meet Jesus, like if you genuinely become a follower of Jesus, you always go another direction. You never go back to the life that brings death. You never go back to where you know it's a different deal. So what do we learn out of this incredibly well-known story that many of us grew up with or some of us are now becoming familiar with? Here's the first thing I'd like to say. Let's be all honest about who Jesus is in the Christmas season. Jesus' birth and, and his life and his teachings and his acts and his claims and his death and his resurrection, his ascension, divide people. And you have to decide in the end. And the star signals the great contrast. The Magi become pilgrims and they find Jesus. 
And then there's Herod who wants to kill Jesus. And then there's the religious clergy who seem to ignore or not respond or don't care. See, when you come face to face with Jesus, there really is no middle ground, especially about his claims and what people claim about him. Either he's God in flesh or he's not. Either he's the savior of the world or he's not. Maybe he's the only way back to the Father or he's not. No, yes or no. And you must accept or reject him. I love years ago one, and I read this, one pastor rightly pointed out, even possessing scriptural knowledge, understanding from the Bible about Jesus is never enough. One must act upon the knowledge they have in order to be saved. The non-Jewish magi had extremely little knowledge about Jesus uh, compared to the religious clergy in Jerusalem. Nevertheless, they acted on the knowledge they had. They found the Christ child and they worshipped him. They found salvation. But many in Jerusalem did not or actually would not meet him. And so there are some people here today Some of you watching online, some of you up in Port Perry, and here's the truth. You are wrestling over the very nature of Jesus. Maybe you've done the alpha thing with us for the last 10 weeks, and you are wrestling with this, and you are unsure if he is who he truly is. And here's where I want to land with you this morning. This was incredibly strong, and I've actually never gone here before in any Christmas sermon I can ever remember. Here's what I need to say to some of you who are on the journey. Don't get stuck on the journey and don't make the journey as an excuse. See, all sorts of people in our culture are all about journey, which is great. But journey actually has to take you somewhere. So in other words, let me say this this morning. Don't get stuck with the star. Don't be the man on the moon. Like, don't literally get stuck there. See, so many of you who are searching and seeking and skeptic and wondering, here's your deal. You are going, there's got to be something more out there. And so maybe you're that nature person, right? You should be living in BC. You should never be living here, right? You like the lakes and the stars and the sky and the trees and the granola and all that. Great. And it's profound. And you know, you walk in nature and you go, there is something so much more. And others of you, it's not just a nature thing for you. It's deeper than that. There, you, you, if we interviewed you, you would say, oh, I have all these supernatural inklings and experiences and dreams, and I, I can't work it out, but I just know there is something more. But what I'm finding continually in our culture more and more as I hang out with people and have spiritual conversations is you have become satisfied with the star. And you've actually forgotten that actually the God of the universe who's trying to connect with you has given these things to you so you can begin a journey. The beginning and the end of the journey is not the star or your spiritual experiences or nature. It is supposed to take you to the second level of the house. What you are tasting is good. It's not the best. And there's others of you who, by the way, have gone way beyond the star and the experiences. You're actually getting stuck in the place of finding facts. You're, you, and, and by the way, I commend you. One thing you know if you hang out with us in this church, we are okay with doubt, we're okay with skepticism, and we believe that the Christian faith is intellectually and rationally defensible and viable. And so we encourage you to do the hard work to understand. But let me just say this to you. I have met so many of my friends who are great intellectual thinkers who use journey as an excuse not to make a decision where they wrestle scientifically and historically and they interview people of faith and they go back and they read big books on the historical possibility of the resurrection and they might even say, you know what, this is quite probable this took place. And then I go, and now what do you do with that? And they're like, well, no, I just want to keep journeying. Stop. God has given you all of this intellect and all of these facts to take you to him. 
Don't get stuck with the star and don't get stuck with the facts. Do not forget, all of this has been given by God, generally and specifically, to lead you back home. It's actually what Jesus' best friend penned. God so loved you that he gave his one and only son, that toddler the wise men met, that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish. They'll have everlasting life. God did not send Jesus in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him, what does believe mean? Blind trust, a leap in the dark? No. Faith in the Bible means informed trust. Whoever has informed trust in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. My challenge to you a week out from Christmas Eve is this. Would you choose to move from the star to facts to faith? Would you move from pilgrimage to the person of Jesus who gives you peace and then walk another path? Would you actually come and humble yourself if you are the nature-oriented person or the spiritual experienced person or the intellectually fact-finding person? Would you, whoever you are, or a mix of those things, decide that though all of those things are good and right and welcome, they are not the end game. The one who's created all of that is. And would you actually humble yourself? See, here's the thing you ought to catch about the Christmas story and actually the whole Christian faith. You never meet him unless you humble yourself. You have to admit who he is and who you're not. You have to admit what he brings and what you do not have in your hand. And if you would humble yourself and pray a very simple, informed trust prayer today, God of the universe, the same Jesus who hung out and played in front of those wise men will send his spirit into you and you will have eternal life and your eyes will be opened and you will see reality as it is and you will be saved. If you have never done that, could everyone just close their eyes for for this moment? I'm going to invite you to do this right now. Up in Port Perry, would you do that too? And by the way, I know what happens when I ask people to do this because I grew up in church. When a pastor asks everyone to bow their heads and we're going to say, okay, if you'd like to accept Christ, all the Christians are like, oh, I've done this and I'm going to start. Would you stop and pray? Someone at this moment might actually pass from death to life, from no eternity to eternity. And if you're one of these seekers or skeptics, God has brought you to this place. And by the way, if you're the prodigal, if you're the person who actually knows all of this and walked away and you're struggling to find your way home. This is the moment of return. You just pray this prayer. Dear God, thank you for sending your son Jesus so I could get to know you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you that you've been with me my whole life whether I knew it or not. And I realize I need a savior to set me free from sin and myself and my habits and my hurts and my hang-ups. So I ask you to forgive my sins. I repent and I want to live a life now the way you created me to live. So I simply say on Christmas, be the Lord of my life. Save me by your grace. Save me from my sin. And save me for purposes that aren't my own. I want to learn to love you now and trust you and become what you've made me to be. I do this for the first time in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to end speaking to we who are Christians this morning. And I just want to remind us of uh, of something together today. That our unity as Christians is at the feet of Jesus himself. All the stories of Christmas as we go through them year in and year out 
point us to the coming reality of the community which we now celebrate called church. God calls shepherds and wise men and parents to surround and, and worship Jesus. And this motley hodgepodge of people makes up who God actually elects to be his own. Th- this wildly diverse group of people are actually expressed here in our own church. And I just want to remind you, this is what church is all about. People, some of us who gather here week in and week out, have a really good godly history. Others of us have a pretty, actually dark, ungodly history. Some of us had a, god, a godly history. We went down an ungodly path and we're back. It doesn't matter your background. What we need to remember is this, that God's intention and what we are reminded about at Christmas is this, that God has decided to love educated people and uneducated people, Jews and non-Jews, people with incredibly religious pasts and very non-religious pasts and everything in the middle. And so just a reminder this Christmas as we gather over the next seven days, as we gather in thousands on Christmas Eve, as we keep gathering it here in Bowmanville and in Port Perry, etc., as we continue to do church together, and sometimes like I've been saying this year, it's hard to stay together because of personality or gender or background or differences, just remember this. From heaven's view, we will continue to keep loving each other and be with each other and stay together because the one who brought us down this pilgrimage in the first place was never us. We never, all of us never started looking for God. He started individually looking for us and he brought us around Jesus together and we're bound to Jesus together. And at this Christmas time, just remember our unity as a church is not in our distinctiveness or our style of church. It is in Jesus Christ who started the pilgrimage, who brought us to himself and brings us to each other. Yeah, and amen. You can absolutely clap about that. And so could we just pray at this Christmas time for our unity as a church? Jesus, in this Christmas season, we are so incredibly thankful that you're here. We're incredibly thankful and we unashamedly proclaim that there's hope in a world that keeps losing hope. We unashamedly proclaim that Jesus, even at his birth, was Lord, as the old hymn says. We're incredibly thankful that you have saved us and forgiven us and changed us. We're incredibly thankful that this isn't your only advent We're incredibly thankful that it says in the scriptures there's another advent coming where you're going to come back and make all things right. But on this week of Christmas Eve, as we prepare in this Christmas season, here's a few things we pray. Number one, for everyone among us who keeps searching and wondering, who's not crossed the line of faith, Jesus, draw them close to yourself and bring them to eternal life. To others that have literally prayed the prayer for the first time here or online today, here's our prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, guard now what you've begun in them. And may they grow into incredible followers of Jesus. And for all of us, Jesus, in our diversity, ethnically, and because of gender and background and generationally, thank you, Jesus, that you are growing the diversity of our church, but continually remind us that you are the one who binds us together in a way that goes beyond politics or life or an economic understanding or education. There is a unity found in this church and in all churches that is deeper and wider and eternal. And so we pray, O oh Lord Jesus Christ, guard the bond of peace in our church. Guard the bond of peace so we will continue to love each other and show the world that the Christmas story is not myth, but it is real because of the love that is being worked out among us. And we pray this in the name of God the Father who sent Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ who was born and lived and died and rose again. And the name of the Holy Spirit who allows us to see Jesus, to walk like Jesus, and guarantees Jesus is coming back and we will meet him. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Why don't we stand across all our sights and respond today uh, in song.